0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. We All right, as this begins to light up, they're handing out one. There'll be several over time, but one of the first... I call it a basic outline. You'll see it's kind of intense anyway, I guess. But they're handing out some of the outlines that at least go along with what I would consider maybe the first half of the book of Mark. I think this one may go through chapter 10 and verse 52, the outline that they're handing out. I'll have it on the screen here in a bit, nonetheless, along with several other items that you might be able to make note of. Of course, we on week before last, I think it was, kind of gave what I called then an introduction to the introduction. And then on last week, we sort of kind of got into the external introduction of these things. And tonight, I would probably consider this more of an internal introduction, albeit we're going to get into the text before you know it. And so we'll be taking view, basically, Lord willing, time allows about verses 1 through 8 of Mark chapter 1. I'm not sure that we'll get through that, but that's about what we're going to at least get started with. About the first eight verses of Mark chapter 1. The story is told years ago that uh, General Douglas MacArthur uh, was leaving his home. And as he was leaving the home, I think to run to the grocery store or something as the story goes, he looked back to his wife as he pulled the door to and he said, I'll be back. And, of course, she thought nothing of that, neither did he. It had no impact at all on the world or or anything. It's not really even a part of history that he ever said that statement on that day. However, uh, it was a decade or so later, supposedly, that he was standing on the Filipino island shores, and he had just been called away by our then president to get back into things. They were kind of restructuring the war in the Pacific and that sort of thing, and they needed his assistance in some of that. And he turned and told some of those people that were there watching and listening to him make one of his final speeches in that area at least, he said, I shall return. Now, you hear those two statements, one of which was spoken to his wife on the way to the grocery store, the other one spoken obviously to the world and it even resonates throughout today and has a great impact upon our society even still, that mindset, particularly with our military, that mindset of always being able to fight and always being able to, return to battle if need be, and to take care, we would call it, of business. And you can immediately assume there's probably some kind of contrast between those two statements. And the contrast that exists between those two statements, at least in my mind for illustration, is the fact, again, that what he said to his wife made no difference in history. None whatsoever. It's probably something he said maybe hundreds or even, if you're like I am, thousands of times to his spouse as he exited the home. But what he said, on the other hand, had a huge impact, and the difference between those two had to do with the time and space upon which it was spoken. The time frame, of course, being much later in the brink of World War II and some of the hardest fighting days that we were facing at that point. The space on halfway across the ocean, the other side of the world, you may as well say, and that made a huge difference. And I only say that because in some senses that somewhat illustrates what we have in contrast when we read the very first phrase or sentence as we might see it, the very first verse of Mark chapter 1, which says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now to you and I hearing that, we're almost like uh, MacArthur's wife probably sitting at home and Although we somewhat understand that, and students in the Bible in particular, as we're trying to prepare to, uh, to be able to discuss these things more in depth and to go through these uh, 16 chapters kind of verse by verse and phrase by phrase, as we say that, uh, the impact is maybe small. But if you or I were to have been sitting in and around the city of Rome, somewhere in the mid to late uh, 50s or even mid 60s, and you hear, hear words such as these, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if you hear those words spoken, and you're in the midst of the underground portion of the city of Rome, some old grain cellars, or even some, some tombs, if you will, and you're in hiding, and you know that without a shadow of a doubt on the other side of that ceiling or those walls, there's always the potential there that you could lose your life a torturous death you might be exposed to at the hands of Claudius or or Nero even by the later stages of that, particularly 67, 68-ish, and even prior to that in 64 when the city of Rome was burned and Nero blamed Christians for that, then you would hear words like these ringing in a whole different mindset. A whole different manner you would hear these things because you would hear them from the perspective of the fact that it's at least possible that in any moment... Roman soldiers could storm that cellar where you are, could pull you out, your family, your children, your wife, whatever that is, could pull you away and can take you up on the courthouse square, pour tar all over you, set you afire, and use you as a candle in his garden. That could happen in your life. Or, for example, in other means, he could take and pull you out and put you in the same area, but now uh, wrap fresh animal skins still bleeding and oozing around your body and let, they, let you out in the fields and such with the feral dogs, and they would, of course, eat you alive, and you would die in that manner. Or it may very well be the case, and highly likely as well, that if you're one of those chosen ones, maybe you're a little bit stronger, a little bit, a little bit tougher, a little bit more uh, younger, maybe a little bit more at yourself physically, he might even take you down to the Colosseum and place you there in front of the multitudes and let the lines loose on you for one reason and that is your Christian. Now again, there you are in that cellar, and you're panicked, and you're somewhat worried, and the only thing you have in life to hold on to is the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, in the fact that He lived, that He died, and He was resurrected. And there's someone burst through the door, and they have in their hand, again, this is mid-50s, mid-60s-ish, a copy of a brand new Gospel account. Matter of fact, it's the first one that you have ever heard. And it begins with these words once again, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It continues with verse 2 as we see it, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And then you start to hear about this man who was preparing that way. His name is John. And it says, And John did baptize in the wilderness, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him in all the land of Judea, and all they of Jerusalem, and all were baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John, verse 6, it records, was clothed with camel's hair, And with a girdle or a belt of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. And he preached verse seven, saying, "There cometh one mightier than I, who of whom uh, cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop but to unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost." Now again, you you hear those words emanating and. And you've never heard anything like such, but you know this here is your salvation. This is what is going to keep you. This is what is going to hold you. This is what is going to maintain your confidence. This is what is going to uplift you in the fact that everything that God has said prior to this, up until this point already, is being and has been already, most of it, fulfilled. And you are a part of that. You see, that's a different mindset. That's a different perspective when we put ourselves in their shoes. And so we're going to begin tonight kind of looking at some of this text. But before we do, I want to back up just a little bit. We had a part of this outline up a week or so ago. And I, for the life of me at that time, could not think of a word that goes right here with Mark. Uh, to fill in the blank for servant, and then someone helped me out right quick and said it was ministry. So Brad, thank you for that. Others gave me some other ideas. There were a handful of words that had that uh, alliterated ending to it, but that's kind of the outline that we uh, started with, and that kind of gives us a comparison of what the gospel accounts, particularly the one that we're uh, here trying to begin to discover tonight or look into, as Mark is set to do, and it speaks of Jesus as the great servant or great and perfect servant of God. Uh, One other thing I kind of of came across this week I wanted to share with you. If you want to keep in memory to some extent what the gospel accounts were set to do from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John's account, the word fact, F-A-C-T, kind of lined up as well as an acrostic can help you with that. Matthew was writing to speak of the fulfillment of Jesus and the fulfillment of prophecies, and he goes to great lengths throughout his account to prove those things and show those things to be evident. Mark, in another hand of that, his ministry speaks of the actions of Jesus, as I said on last week and maybe the week before, that so much of what Mark writes is not about his words, but about his work. It's not about his discussions, but it's about the things that he determined to do. You'll see that there. You see the compassion that comes out in Luke. Of course, that's a book about uh, particularly Christ and his humanity. And oftentimes Luke uses phrases that really just come out and say that. And he looked on them, speaking of Jesus, with compassion. And that word compassion literally in the Greek meant to convulse, to have that much emotion about him. And of course, John and Brad referred to it in all of our invitation a moment ago in our devotion, that has to do with truth and the fact that Jesus Christ stood as truth. So that's kind of just another little outline that I share with you to kind of help with that, but that word fact, F A C T, kind of spelling that out. Now, as far as the briefest outline I'll probably offer in the next so many weeks, This outline right here kind of gives you a real overview as to what's occurring and what happens throughout the book of Mark, all these 16 chapters. The first part of it is very brief, and it's really this this first chapter, these first 13 verses, have to do with the pre-ministry of Christ. Because by the time you get to verse 14 of chapter 1, Jesus' earthly ministry, if you want to use that term loosely, officially starts... And Jesus immediately hits the ground moving. He begins to teach. He begins to perform miracles. He begins to do good works. And, of course, that is the very beginning, as uh, Mark refers to it, of, the, of his earthly ministry. Then I call this very loosely now uh, his popular ministry. Uh, not that Jesus was always popular among the people, and certainly he never intended to be that. He wasn't here on earth to try to be a popular person. He just tried to be a fulfilled person, and, and that is to do the will of God. But there was a good long time in Mark's account because it does move at such a fast pace, but he did have multitudes who followed him. He did have quite a few people, thousands upon upon people and throngs of people even. The multitudes would follow after him, and whether or not it was out of curiosity or sincerity or whatever, they were there, and they were present. And basically, chapter 1, verse 14 to 8 and 26 kind of encapsulate that time frame. And then the last section here, just to divide these up in three parts, not equal though, that of his parting ministry. And uh, Mark goes from chapter 8 and verse 27 through the end of the book and kind of takes that, that mode, and this is much like other of the Gospels do as well, to basically discuss Jesus' last week-ish or so on earth. And by the time the parting ministry comes up, Jesus' impending death and, and ultimate doom is set as far as the physical body that he possessed. And so that's what we have in that. Then I shared this chart with you. I won't go back over it, although I did uh, was able to correct that. That goes through chapter, chapter 10 and verse 52 and aligns pretty much with the others. The only two main divisions in this, uh, the way I've chose to lay this out is the service of Jesus' discussed, and then finally the sacrifice. Again, not quite in that second half, but that second section of the book. Now the outline that you have in front of you right now and I think they must have ran out a bit because they ran some extra copies of that but the outline you have in front of you is is pretty much the one that we are going to carry through all the way through chapter 10 and verse 52 Um, as you can see it's not divided up very very tightly or very concisely in certain places and as I go through this hopefully I'll be able to tell you each week from week to week what we're going to try to accomplish how many verses we'll cover what section what those sections of scripture are about But then also, hopefully, give you a preview the next week. Okay, we're going to be studying this next section, and here's what that is about as well. But this will be one, if you can hold on to it, most of you got one that was kind of half-sized to put in the cover of your Bible. You can probably make use of that for a long, long time, because we're a long way from chapter 10, as we haven't covered anything uh, really yet. Now, as far as the, the discussion we're trying to get into tonight, these first eight verses, which I read with you a moment ago, can be divided up in several different ways, but basically, the way I see it, it has to do with this preparation, verses 1 to 3, and that is, that is what God had for John the baptizer to do, to come and prepare the way for the Lord, and that was his intention. That's not something that was uh, made up in the moment. That's not something that was brought in as an, an afterthought or an accident. That was something that was long since prophesied, and we'll see those references a little bit later as well. And then we also have in verses 4 to 6, the preacher himself. That's John the baptizer. Of course, in those two verses or three right there uh, give us some physical characteristics of John. Not only his physical appearance as far as the way he was clothed and the way that he dressed and what he ate, but also uh, where he was. And I think that's going to be very significant as well. And then finally, the last one here, and this is just for tonight's discussion, y'all uh, yeah, be it. The proclamation, that is what did John the baptizer come to say there in verses 7 and 8. All right. Now, the next part of this, this is the scriptures themselves. When I went through and kind of looked at this, there were a lot of things that stood out on paper and I kept going back and forth with how I could share a little bit about, uh, about that with you. And so I want to just kind of show you a little bit of what I was able to do as far as the way I marked up. Uh, my Bible, that's not actually it, obviously mine is white or yellow pages, but um, kind of the way I'll mark things up, these scriptures that are revealed to us, and it wouldn't matter whether you're here in the book of Mark, the first uh, few verses, these are the first three on the screen, or whether or not you're in any other section of scripture, Old or New Testaments, but particularly for me, the New Testament, there is no argument, no doubt in my mind, as I've been blessed to study the Bible a little bit, that the more that you dig into God's Word, certainly the more you can find out. Now you've got to be cautious with that. You've got to be careful all of God's Word is not an allegory. Every single word, every single phrase, every single uh, parsed out uh, little tick or something not, doesn't necessarily mean everything or even anything for that point. But there is no question at all that what God inspired to be penned, to be recorded and preserved for us, has meaning. And that there's no verse that we can cross if we're careful about such and say, well, that's just a side note, that's just something that's thrown in, and it doesn't amount to anything, it doesn't matter. As as one of my elders in Philadelphia, Mississippi used to say it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. It's all there for intended purposes. And so as we begin to break this down, the first part of this, and I shared this with you a moment ago in that other outline, the presentation here, verses 1 to 3, we'll try to notice some of that. So look at the first phrase or so here. This starts out in verse 1 and says, "...the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ... The Son of God. Now, when you look at that word "beginning" and just kind of examine what Mark is doing here, there are a couple of different ways to view this. I think either one works, but the latter uh, probably works a little bit better. You could say, well, this may very well be, and it might. Evidence may show this that this is the first recorded, you know, pinned down, inspired gospel account of Jesus Christ. Meaning by that, that chronologically, or if you dated out these books the book of Mark most likely is the very first one to be recorded. Um, The only adjustment you might make to that is it seems that around the same time, probably within the same uh, few months or maybe within inside a year of that, most likely Mark and Matthew were written together. And so you might argue then, or someone may argue, I wouldn't argue it, but which one would have came first? And that's kind of about as profitable as the chicken and the egg argument as far as that goes. The point is it's inspired of God. I don't know that that's really the case here. It could be that Mark is the first recorded gospel account, but what is more important to me and what Mark seems to emphasize is the fact that this is the beginning. If you'll notice the way the other gospel accounts uh, begin, and of course they begin in different ways to one extent, but Matthew's account, Luke's account, John's account, or the others, most all of them begin with either a genealogy of Jesus or they have something to say about his birth or have some detail to tell about his life, his younger life, and we have very little of that. We have the record of him in the temple at about the age 12-ish, something like that. That's about what we have in that. But they have other details about the life, the heritage, the family of Christ. Mark doesn't do that. Mark, in using the terms that we mentioned a week or so ago, with being so immediate, so fast-paced, so quick, Mark takes no time and spends no time to do any of that. Mark, of course, being inspired to write, but him also noticing the urgency of what needed to be written. Again, I think when you put this in the time frame, if he was the first recorded, penned gospel account, even though he was reviewing something that happened about 10, 15 years earlier, when he pins this, this letter is being let out. This scribes are writing this down. Copyists are making copies of this, sending it around. This is the first opportunity that some of those extremely persecuted horrible horrible situations many of those christians were in. this is the first account that they get of this many of them albeit they have known of christ and certainly they have known of the establishment of the church those things happened prior to this they had had opportunity to obey christ's gospel some of them mind you more than likely had never really heard as we would call it the rest of the story some of them hadn't had that opportunity And so what Mark chooses to do, perhaps, and and definitely by inspiration, perhaps in using just the the mindset, the mentality of Mark and others around him, Mark jumps in like his great friend Peter being impetuous and just says, look, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone says, well, what about Jesus' birth? He didn't care about that. What about Jesus' heritage? makes no difference to him. What about Jesus and what he might have done as a, as a younger man or, or what he did prior to his earthly ministry? What about all of that? Mark's answer to that seems to be, according to this first phrase here, it doesn't matter. And when you light that beneath the sun or beneath the bulb of the fact that he primarily writes as well, it seems primarily to a Gentile group, albeit the Jews received this, that would mean nothing to them anyway. They're not interested in Christ's heritage. They're not interested in Christ's pedigree as far as earthly things go. They're only interested in the fact that Jesus Christ was able to come to this earth and die also for their sins. And you know, when we're honest about it, that is the main course of what matters to us today. The same mindset, the same idea, the fact that Jesus Christ came to earth as God in the body, as I refer to him often, and he was willing to die in that human body for our sins. That's what really matters. Other details fill in the blanks. Other details stand as apologetic type stuff to prove the fact that all these prophecies were true and such. But Mark jumps in just with the fact that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a part of this preparation. The second word or phrase that we come across here, the beginning of the gospel. What in the world is the gospel? Uh, you've heard this said many times, and I speak Munford Greek, not Grecian Greek, so I don't claim to be able to pronounce these words. I don't know that any of us truly can anyway as far as what we think. But this Eulon Gellion is the word you've probably heard before. The good news of Jesus Christ. That's something to do with this gospel. Matter of fact, that's the source and the course of the whole of this gospel right here is the fact that it does bring good news. Now, if you look into the etymology of the word and where it comes from and what it means and all, it means a few different things. They're all much related. But one of the phrases that you can come away with is this is the glad tidings of Jesus Christ. You know, we think about the, the holiday season and sometimes people will sing songs with the phrase in it, glad tidings or good tidings or something like that. It's the idea of celebration. It's the idea of good news being brought that re- relieves the burden or lifts the burden off of someone in the fact that they hear it, heard it. You know, how many times in your life have you been given what you would call good news and that just makes the whole rest of your day or your week or whatever time frame you want to put that in? Maybe you've had a difficult time. Maybe you struggled. Maybe things, as we say, haven't been going your way. And then all of a sudden someone comes and they give you good news that turns everything over and makes everything okay. That's a little bit about uh, what is contained in here. Now when you think about the gospel itself, this gospel uh, was that which was spoken of in this case particularly, it was spoken of by what they would call then more like a herald. A herald, we might parallel with a preacher or a teacher or something like that. It was oftentimes in a more uh, physical sense, not a religious sense, but oftentimes was tied to a victory that had been won. For example, if you write this, this particular gospel account and it gets released in and around Rome or Italy, it's where it is probably most likely pinned from the location, and it is sent out from that perspective, from that means outward you would understand that most of these citizens, particularly the Roman, the Greek citizens and all, would totally understand what a herald's job or what his effort was to do. They go out, they fight in the fields of battle, the families are left at home, they're waiting, they're wondering, they're hoping that their loved one, that their father in that case or their husband, whomever that was, is going to finally make it home. If they were, they were going to be alive. And the herald runs back in the city and he cries out, We have found victory, Rome has found victory. That's what's being announced here. The beginning of the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings, if you will, of Jesus Christ is what is being brought out here. Now what Mark chooses to do with this, of course, again, by inspiration, is he tells us this is the beginning of the gospel, and he uses this phrase here. It's not necessarily the names of, but it's the scripture of Jesus, and he says it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Of course, Jesus. The idea of the Old Testament, Heshua or Jeheshua, bringing it forth into Jesus, or or something of that sort, meaning Jehovah saves. That's the physical birth, uh, mother given, if you will, but God given ultimately name that was given to Jesus, as recorded in Matthew chapter one, verses eighteen to twenty-five. And he shall be called Jesus. Why is that? Because he will save his people from their sins. And so that was the intent, that was the import of what was being done. But the fact that he was not only Jesus, but the fact that he was also called the Christ. What in the world does Christ mean? You can talk a little bit, I'm trying to move quickly, but you can talk all you want. Christ, the anointed one. Now, when you reflect this out in the way that it may have borne out in the day and time, you take it back to a time of the Caesars, for example. And that's the time under which they're living, time of writing. Uh, Perhaps, uh, as I said a week or two ago, Claudius coming up, Nero taking hold of that throne and such as that. Uh, They oftentimes, and it was a physical thing both in religious realm as far as physical realms, oftentimes their leaders, their heads of state, whatever you might call that, they were oftentimes physically anointed. And in this particular case, and this is historical, this is extra biblical as much as it is biblical in one case. In this particular case, and the way that those uh, seizures would have handled themselves and been handled, oftentimes they were seen themselves as gods. So what Mark is doing here... He begins this out and says this is the beginning. This is right cutting to the chase. This is the core of what's going to really matter in our lives both now and in eternity. And it has to do with Jesus who we know was sent here by God who is called the Messiah. He is the anointed one and he is the son of God. Singular. Not like Nero would have been referred to or Augustus or any others, not like they would have been referred to as they were asking a man to bow down to them and to worship them and to give them homage and to give them honor. Mark comes out of the gate with Inspiration's tongue and says, This is Jesus called the Christ, the Anointed One, and He, only He, is the Son of God. Now that, 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 that hits us differently today. It shouldn't as as Christians, as Bible students, but it it honestly does. It hits us differently today. But for me, these these children of God reading these things in the first century times, having these things maybe read for the first time in public, perhaps in one of these granaries or in these tombs, as they're being read, that's a victory song within itself. That Jesus, who you know of as having been crucified some years before, probably 20 or 30 at the most... From time of writing, to back into that, the back end of that, that Jesus who was hung on the cross, who was crucified, who many said was cursed because of the fact that he was, was not an afterthought, was not an end game plan of God's, but actually in reality was His Messiah, His Anointed One. He was and stands as the Son of God. That is a really big deal. And so when we go throughout this gospel account, as Jesus has made reference to in many different ways and from many different perspectives, particularly in this case for his service and what he was willing to do, they are to never lose hold of the fact that he was the very son of God. That's why he was here. Yes, in human physical form, but in this case and in this form of for the fact that he was the son of God himself. Yes, Miss Anita? Mark does seem to write in the most common Greek of his day. And sometimes even when, that, when his gospel account is translated to English, it comes across more common to us. Um, I've said before, as I've heard, and this is not when I'm reading it myself, I'd see it. But if I just hear someone just jump in the middle of Mark and just start reading, you know, maybe on the radio or something like that, there are a lot of times when even if it's being read from King James English, I say, wow, what is that? What translation is that? Where are, we, where are we getting those words from? The truth is Mark does write in a very common language of the day. Now Mark at the same time does use Aramaic terms which we mentioned in the introduction to this which he explains every one of those. He uses a handful of Latin terms throughout this. I have a chart on that. Uh, I think I may have shared a little bit. I've got it anyway uh, where those come out. But Mark, yes, he speaks in a very common language and he's plain with them about what he's intending to do. Now... The next part of this, verse 2, adding to that, just that first phrase is really all that is, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says this, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Now this idea, of this messenger, this sent, there are a few things that come up in this. There are a lot of things really but, of course, we're already knowing because we may have read ahead and snuck up, and we should have probably, but we're speaking specifically about John the Baptizer. Some refer to him as John the Baptist. Uh, we have to be careful of that in the way that's misunderstood today. But John the Baptizer, that's his practice. That's what he was known for. You know, someone might be Philip the Carpenter or something like that. But John the Baptizer, uh, he was this forerunner. He was this voice that we read later on in this same book, was crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way for the Lord. He was the one specifically that was promised in his time through the prophets would do this. Now some of the misconceptions of the day and even uh, much of what we read here in Mark's gospel as well, they were mis- misunderstanding this. Some of the disciples, even the apostles misunderstood. They were looking physically for the return of what great Old Testament prophets? What were the rumors? That's right. Elijah was supposedly going to return. And so a lot of these people, you know, we stand back, and I do at least. I, I didn't wear my suspenders. I threw them away years ago, but I did like them. Uh, but we pop our suspenders and say, "Well, those, you know, those poor ignorant Jews and, and Gentiles of that day, you know, how did they miss the Lord? How do they miss Christ being the Messiah? I mean, all the signs, if you will, all the prophets pointed to it. There's no doubt about that. How, how could they come away with that? And where take these misconceptions and mis- and improper ideas about Him and so? Look in their minds." They were some of them, now many of them were skewed in their thinking and it was intentional, but for some of them it was probably innocent in the fact that they believed there could be no Messiah, no anointed one, no Savior to come unless Elijah should return first. That's prophecy. You go back in some of the Old Testament references that are brought out, those here in verse 2 as well as in verse 3. Go back in points such as Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 as well as what you find in Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 and also Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. Those things specifically, and I put those on the bottom here, those things specifically pointed toward the fact, the way that they understood those prophecies at least, that Elijah was going to physically return. And there were rumors, not just among religious people speaking loosely, but among the general population. The rumor was spoken over and over again and repeated that Jesus Christ was Elijah, that he was just a resurrected form. Mark has a very brief account of this. We'll get to later, actually pretty quickly, uh, within his book. But in Matthew chapter 16, uh, was it 16, 18? Yeah, 16, 18 through 20. Jesus comes to his disciples and says, Whom do men say that I, the son of Man, am? What were some of the answers? Some say, Jeremiah, <laughs> some say a Jeremiah. Elijah, one of the prophets. Yeah. They thought Jesus was that. And so that we stand back again, at least maybe I'm the only one guilty of that. I stand back and say, well, you know what fools they were not to see it. It was so clear, and it's so clear to us. I mean, look, we've got all this right here, and you can read it, and, and you, some of you have cross-references down the middle, and you can find these things out, and you can study the sign If you'd read the whole thing cover to cover, you'd probably get it by now. Being reared and raised up, either on the one hand on the blessed side of it as a Jew who had constantly had repeated in his head over and over again that as the Messiah would come, he would first be brought into place by a forerunner who they knew of as they thought Elijah. Now, the idea was not that it was physically going to be a resurrected Elijah. That was their misconception. But really that he was going to be a prophet after the manner of Elijah, which is exactly how Mark describes him. He's a type of. He is a type of Elijah, both in, in picture and type, as we would say, type and type. He's also a type in the fact that he physically, most likely to them, carried the physical characteristics of Elijah and the lifestyle of Elijah. A man of the wilderness, a man of the rough. And so, go ahead. I was just going to say, but to the, the Gentiles to whom this book was written, none of them Even worse. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That, for the Jew, they were blessed to know that, so they thought. The Gentile stands back and says, what, what in the world are you talking about? Yeah. Well, what, what connection does Jesus have to any of us? There's no heritage line. What connection does John the Baptizer have to any of us? He's a wild man out in the middle of the, out in the, middle of the desert. Well, the beauty of it is, and it's what the text will reveal very quickly within these first eight verses is, I don't know exactly how to describe what the attraction, and there's giant quotes around that, that John the baptizer had, but he obviously had one. To go from where he was most likely, and it says, it tells us, was in the Jordan River baptizing these people. That is most likely right outside the city of Jericho. That's kind of the general area that's assumed up into Jerusalem and up into Judea. Was over many times a 20 mile walk to get down to John the baptizer. 20 miles. So this is not John the baptizer who just happened to be in front of Walmart when you come out and somebody's ringing a silly bell, I'm tying a lot of things together, don't go together, that gets your attention and you stop and say, well, the rest of Walmart's being baptized, I'll do it. This is someone who with intention says, I don't know what exactly is going on here, but I need to go and see whether you're a Gentile who has no exposure to this or whether you're a Jew who's being extremely persecuted in the day. This stands already just in that as being great news within itself. So I think time is up. That's a second. is there two bales anymore? I don't know anything. Is that, that time up? I see children walking, so we'll call it off right there. We didn't get uh, very far. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to finish through verse eight, and I'm a whole lot of slides from this, but we're also going to get down. I can't get it there quick enough. We're going to begin to look at verses 9 through 14 next week. Verses 9 through 14.